Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1. She speaks. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your lovemaking is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your oils, your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. Last week we looked at what it meant to have a name. A name is that bit of a, of a guy that's etched in stone that won't change. Your name in these days stood for your character. And so she finds this guy attractive and loves kissing him, but he's got a name that she finds pleasing too. No wonder the women, young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me in to his chambers. Friends, we don't know who these are or why they're commenting, but they declare, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Now the image between love and wine and kisses and wine is that, that lovemaking is intoxicating. You get swept up. It's euphoric. And one of the points we've been trying to make uh, is that of the 613 commandments of the Bible, commandment number one is be fruitful and multiply. And that God chose to have that happen in a very fun and unique way. And so this, this sense of... The, the point that it will keep making is that you and I were sexual before we were sinful. I cannot stress this point enough. Your sexual desires are part of humanness, not sinfulness. Now, they've been warped and need to be redirected, and on that, I'm sure we can all agree. But human beings were sexual before they were sinful. And so, this church teaching that somehow says that conversations about relationships, sexuality, arousal, attraction, intercourse, fulfillment, that those are somehow not properly church topics, that's just, that's just false and harmful. And so, the song doesn't start with a nice warm intro. We were sitting on a park bench, uh, you know, sharing prayer requests. It, it starts, <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. It starts with, your lovemaking is more intoxicating than wine. You not only have a compelling kiss, you have a compelling name. The friends say, we affirm this. She replies, how right the young ladies are to adore you. And then she says, dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. If you uh, were here last week, dark isn't a racial thing. It's the tone of skin. In those days, if you worked outside, you were considered lower status. If you had fine skin, delicate, untouched by the sun, that was considered the ideal. That meant you were of high status enough to not have to work out in the fields. In, in, in art, from uh, so these sorts of time periods, the, the women are always portrayed with lighter skin than the men. Because for the men working outside, that was a fine thing. But for women to work outside, that was symbolic of very low status. And so she says, dark am I, yet lovely. Here's the paradox. There are parts of me that I like, and there's a part of me I can't stand. Dark like the tents of Kedar, which uh, usually tents were made out of really black, coarse goat hair. Okay, so this was black. Like the cur tent curtains of Solomon, which we think were a deep purple. 
Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. And I know it's hard for Southern Californians to actually appreciate this, right? Whereas we see tan as, as attractive. Back then, tan was considered a mark of very low status, something that was to be hidden or apologized for. So she says, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons, my brothers, were angry with me and made me take care of the family vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. She uses, and she does this all throughout the poem, she uses vineyard in two different ways. She says, my own family vineyard, a literal vineyard, this was the family business I had to take care of, which meant working outside because my brothers were angry with me. But my own vineyard, the second way she uses the idea of vineyard is in reference to her body and sexuality. So very often, you'll see it throughout the poem, she speaks of her vineyard or vineyard or vineyard. And she'll either mean a literal vineyard or she'll mean her body. And so she says, and there's a Hebrew wordplay here. She says, my brother's sons were angry. The word angry and the word darkened are the same word in Hebrew. So, and you could translate it scorched. My brother's sons were scorched with me, therefore I was scorched by the sun. So it's the idea that, that when we have no mention of a father here, but it's the idea that she was forced to work outside and as a result, I'm lovely, but don't stare at me and judge me by the darkness of my skin. That is the plea. Now what is wonderful is that 3,000 years later, we don't struggle with body image. We have been fully delivered. Go ahead and turn your eyes to the screen. Um, I just wanted to make a video to ask if I was pretty or not. There's a lot of bullying these days, and I've been bullied basically my whole life since like kindergarten. And I want to know, like, am I pretty? Like, I have my friends tell me that I'm not ugly and that stuff, but they're friends, so they're probably lying. But I truly view myself as like this wicked, ugly, fat thing. And I really hate this. I am just asking all you guys, please comment below about this, but am I pretty or ugly? Because I kind of think I'm ugly. I mean, you could tell the complete truth. I wouldn't care because I get called ugly and pretty a lot. Um, and it's usually my voice. And well, my parents call me pretty, and some boys call me ugly, but I don't care. They're boys. I have a question. People tell me this all the time, so... I don't know. Is it true? People say I'm ugly. So, tell me. Am I? What sort of screwed up world causes 11 year old girls to go on YouTube to have one of the most fundamental questions a young lady can ask answered. 
narcissistic? Well, maybe. Or how about lied to beyond belief? And when you read the comments, I mean, forgive my language, but yeah, you're effing ugly. Die, bitch. You should kill yourself. What sort of world is this exactly? See, there's a word that the scriptures use to describe a culture like this. It's the word Gehenna. We translate it hell. Our ideas of beauty are more demonic than we can possibly imagine. Unless, unless we think this is purely a feminine issue. Boys, are we not confronted by the same airbrushed images of dudes with six-packs and traps and delts? I see the same people when I go to the gym wondering, wondering how many hours it takes to get a body like that. Knowing that in 20 years that body will start breaking down and whatever sense of worth and status and power you held in that body will now disappear. What kind of world? I mean, evidently, a 3,000-year-old love poem is relevant because it speaks of issues that are fundamental to human existence. And so we have a culture just like the culture this young lady was raised in. There's an ideal of beauty. She doesn't meet it. 3,000 years later, there's an ideal of beauty. We don't meet it. Now, I want to spend, before we get back to the text, I want to spend just a little time talking about how jacked up the world is. Because, like I said before, the hardest people to set free are the people who don't know they're enslaved. And this is an area of such demonic oppression that I want to spend some time convincing us we're enslaved. Now, some of this you may have heard from me before. Indulge me for maybe 10 minutes, if you would. Because a certain thing happened in human history that altered the course of even American culture a couple thousand years later. Right as the Persian culture was crumbling, there was a man named Alexander the Great who stormed through the world, conquered the known world, and he had a goal. We've talked about this before. His goal was to Hellenize the world, not just to conquer it, but to turn it Greek. Alexander was a marketing genius before marketing was even a word. Because what Alexander would do is he would subjugate a people and then he would seek to woo them to the Greek way of looking at the world. Now, the Greek way of looking at the world is fascinating because as one of their philosophers said very early, man is the measure of all things. To the Hellenists, Human beings are the center of the universe. Human wisdom is the highest truth. Human performance, the best performance. And the naked human body, the most compelling beauty. 
Alexander was brilliant at spreading these ideals. What he would do is he would conquer a people and then he would start building. He would build temples where you could worship the Greek gods. He would build theaters where the scandalous <laughs> and almost pornographic exploits of the Greek gods would be performed for the masses. They, they built something called a gymnasium, and we think a gymnasium is a place where you work out the body. For the Greeks, yes, you worked out the body, but these were institutions of higher learning. If you were young, you would, learn, you would go to school and you would learn the Greek language. As you got older, you would read the Greek writers, learn math and music, and still older, you would learn Greek drama, Greek sculpture, Greek art. Gymnasiums had a big open area in the middle, classrooms around the, the open area, and, and the, the, the Greeks... They thought the naked human body was the most glorious thing, and so you would, uh, you would be, you would compete naked, right? This is what you would do in athletic contests. And in fact, there was so much pressure. The Greeks looked at Jews who circumcised themselves, at least the men, and they thought it was a disfiguring of beauty. So if you were Jewish and you wanted to participate in the games, you would have reverse circumcision. Don't even ask me how that happened. You would have reverse circumcision in order to participate. The thing I want you to know is that to the Greeks, wisdom, a sound mind, and a symmetrical, beautiful body were the things that were most valued. And so, if you, uh, and we could take a detour onto Greek art and sculpture, and you could see this over and over and over. Now, people had always been concerned with appearance, but now, now there was a military machine behind this. And so, Alexander conquered the world in order to turn it Greek, and central to the Greek ideal. In fact, oh my goodness, this, this if I can find this quote. Well, I can't find it. So let me go from memory, which is a scary thing. But, but this particular Greek philosopher said, the only thing worth loving is beauty. To be beautiful is to be loved. To not be beautiful is to be unloved. So what the Greeks did is they took an ideal of human spirit, human body, human accomplishment, and held it up, and then they began pushing to the margins anyone who didn't measure up. Now, if you're wondering where this is going and why it's relevant, it's relevant for this reason. There became a practice censured uh, and affirmed, excuse me, not censured, but affirmed by uh, Greek religion, Greek morality, ultimately codified in a Roman law that was called the exposure of infants. This is where Hellenism takes you. If you hold up an ideal of what, the, of what human beings should look like, act like, and be like, what began to happen is any human being that didn't measure up, they just got rid of. So, for instance, a letter dated, go ahead and fire up the iPad, a letter dated from 1 BC from a man called Hilarion to his wife. He'd gone to Alexandria and was writing about, a house, about household affairs. He said, know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others return, I remain there. 
I beg you and beseech of you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I'll send them to you. If, good luck to you, you have a child. If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. Just like, make sure you get milk. The grocery store, I mean, just nothing. It was, it was you take a system that, that, that obsesses over one ideal, and then very naturally what you do is you start pushing to the margins anyone who doesn't measure up. Seneca, we slaughter a mad ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle lest they taint the herd. Children who were born weakly and deformed, we drown. So Socrates, for those of you Bill and Ted fans, it's okay, yeah. Yeah, evidently there's a sequel in the works, which, you know, why not? Bill and Ted in middle age, it'll be awesome. So here was the argument. The children of inferior parents or any child of the others that is born defective, they'll hide in a secret and unknown place. Now, to expose an infant means simply that you would bring it to the father. The father had power of life and death. If the father received the child, it would stay. If the father turned his back on the child, they would take it outside the city gates and leave it to die. Okay, in some cases, they'd actively murder the child, but in other cases, they would just expose it to the elements, to the animals. This is what Hellenism looks like when you take it to an extreme. In fact, there was one manual written called How to Recognize the Newborn That is Worth Rearing. Okay, do you understand? People were confused. How do I know if I should expose my offspring or not? So the, the, the book is How to Know if You Have an Infant That's Worth Keeping. And he goes through and, and he says, well, it should be perfect in all of its parts, limbs, and senses and have passages that are not obstructed, including ears, note, uh, nose, throat, urethra, anus. Its natural movement should be neither slow nor feeble. Its limbs should bend and stretch. Its size and shape should be appropriate. So on, so on, so on. And then he sanctioned murdering imperfect babies by saying, and by conditions contrary to any of those just listed, the infant not worth rearing is recognized. Aristotle wrote, as to the raising and exposure of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. Now, the reason we go into this history is to say, many years before you and I were ever on the scene, there was a movement dedicated to the upholding of a specific ideal of beauty, art, civilization. Alexander was a marketing genius. He would leave in his wake not just a conquered people, but all of the stuff that reinforced the Greek ideal. And the Greek ideal, the center of it, was human beings. Only the beautiful are loved. What do we do with the rest of them? Well, if you have an infant that doesn't measure up, you get rid of it. Now, let me ask you a question. Conservative estimate is that 15 million girls starve binge and purge themselves, have clinically diagnosed eating disorders. Is Hellenism alive and well? $12 billion was spent in 2008 on unnecessary elective cosmetic surgeries. Is Hellenism alive and well? Can you check out at the grocery counter 
and not be bombarded with images that you know are airbrushed but are so prevalent, shouting to you again and again and again, a man looks like this and a sexy woman looks like this. In fact, there was a movement in early in the 20th century to eradicate the defectives in the gene pool, of which my son, who has Down syndrome, would be considered one of them, by forcibly sterilizing young ladies so they could not have children, or castrating young men who were considered defective. Now you can think, well, that was then, we're more civilized. Really? Really? There's a movement now to discontinue services to children with Down syndrome because if you're going to choose to have one, that's on you. 92% of people who receive a diagnosis of Down syndrome in utero abort. Is Hellenism alive and well? You bet. So, on the one hand, one of the reasons why 11-year-old girls go on YouTube and ask if they're beautiful is because the legacy of Alexander and his Greek ideals is still with us. But the other reason that this happens is because the standards of beauty keep changing. By the time you embody whatever current definition of beauty is, it'll be different. So, you start an early culture. Who could, who could possibly have a waist that size? <laughs> right? And, 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 then, and then we went, and it got to be so that plump was actually beautiful. I yearned for those days, <laughs> personally. Right, so you, you have all of these, and then you hit the 20s. And, you know, we all know what those were like. So, but notice the standards of beauty and how they change. Right, so you have, you have very, and then you get into the 30s, the 40s. You have these very different images of what was beautiful. Some of you remember these, right? Lauren Bacall, is that who that is? Okay, see, Boom. Right? Then, and, then, and, then you, and then you get Marilyn. And she became kind of the defining picture of beauty for an entire generation. Then you're now into the 60s. And you start having some crazy hair. Right? <laughs> and, then, and then you start seeing very skinny starts making an appearance. Right? Grace Jones. Diana Ross. Now we're in the 70s. Now you get this sort of disco look. Farrah Fawcett. Right? There's another pinup for another generation. Then you get into the 80s. My goodness, and big hair makes a comeback. <laughs> right? I know, I know, I know. I know. Era of the supermodel. You get into the 90s. 90210. Then you start, then you start seeing impossibly thin people. Impossibly. Right? Who can measure up to that? And now we're in the era of Photoshop. So even the pictures we see, we can't trust. So here's a before and after. Here's somebody that's already beautiful being, ha having to be made more so. I mean, how sick and twisted is that? We take our beautiful people and modify them. Right? Notice Katie Couric. How much younger and thinner 
This was classic. 19, early 1990s, there was this big Esquire pictorial. What Michelle Pfeiffer needs is absolutely nothing. She is that beautiful. And then there was this really subversive sort of marketing, uh, anti-marketing campaign that captured the bill for her retouching. So the girl that needed absolutely nothing said, we had to spend $1,500 on cleanup complexion, soften eyeline, soften smile line, add color to lips, trim chin, remove neckline, soften line under earlobe, add highlights to earrings, add blush to cheek, clean up neckline, remove stray hair, remove hair strands from dress, adjust color, da da da. Total $1,500. So evidently, what Michelle Pfeiffer needed back then was what? Work. So 3,000 years ago, a young lady says, dark am I, yet lovely. Do not stare at me because my son has been scorched. My brothers were scorched towards me. 3,000 years later, that same issue. So let me ask you, is Hellenism alive and well? You bet. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. I want to talk about the kind of world we find ourselves in and how it is exactly Jesus aims to get us out. Genesis 1, we are here all the time if you're part of our community. God creates with great order, design, and purpose. And there's a certain rhythm and flow to the poem of Genesis 1, and then it gets interrupted when he comes to human beings. God said, let us make, verse 26, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that human beings may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals. Rule here doesn't mean strip, mine, and pollute. It means govern well. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Brothers and sisters, the first human beings were stamped with God's image. Now what that means exactly is that however faintly, they echoed certain characteristics of what God himself was like. And they were given work and purpose and meaning and significance. We find later in the account to participate with God in the governance over the created order. But they are fundamentally image bearers. And what that means for the scripture account is that how you treat people is how you treat the creator. Loving your neighbor and loving God are the same thing, according to Jesus. In fact, there's a command given later in Genesis that says, listen, don't murder Because if you do, your life will be taken. Why? Because you've just killed someone in God's image. In the book of James, there's a comment about slander and gossip and the the using of our speech to harm people. And, And James just kind of has this line that says, my brothers, it should not be that with the same tongue you praise God and you curse men who are made in God's image. Now, I have sitting before me a card for my sweet Hannah. I is on the front. Love you. 
I love you to daddy from Hannah. Now let me ask you, artistically, is that a good eye? No, it's not a good eye. It's not. Hold this up to a Monet or a Picasso or something, right? How's that heart? Well, I know it's a heart, but it's a little non-symmetrical, right? And the U, clearly traced, right? (laughs) I have boxes full of very poor art. Why? Because what they create and my appreciation of it reflects how I feel about them, right? So I keep the creation because I love the creator. So I keep this even though, I mean, I can't tell you how many bad presents, (laughs) right? And any father or mother here will tell you the thing, the little finger pot you made in first grade. It's buried somewhere, but we have it. We can't get rid of it. We're compelled to keep your first handwriting, the hair from your first haircut. We're compared to keep it all. Why? Because they came from you. Anything you make is of value to us because we love you. And the idea, human beings made in God's image, is that how you treat other image bearers is how you treat the God in whose image they're made. Very, very simple. Adam and Eve were created to live in a garden called Eden. Eden is a Hebrew word that means delight. How fun was that? The scriptures tell us they were naked and unashamed and had to obey a command that said, be fruitful and multiply. Sounds like a pretty good combo. But the big point for our purposes is this. Adam and Eve weren't wondering where to find meaning and significance. They weren't posting videos wondering if they were attractive. They were of value simply because they were made in the image of their creator. End of story. It used to be that that was enough. Then, as you know, Genesis chapter 3, flip there. Now it's no longer enough. A tempter comes, invites these first humans into disobedience. If you're here and you're like not a fan of the Bible or you're going, really, a talking snake? You really want me to buy this? We can have the talking snake conversation another time. I'd be glad to have that conversation. But the point we're making is somewhat independent of whether or not you believe in a talking snake or not, okay? So just set that aside. And I just wanna, I wanna continually acknowledge there are people who are either in here or listening who may not buy the whole thing, and that is just fine. That is just fine. The conversation is still worth having regardless. And so brothers and sisters, these first human beings get tempted into disobedience. Verse six, When the women saw that eating this particular fruit, the only fruit that was, of which they were commanded to not eat, when when the woman saw that that particular fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her, they ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, they realized they were naked and for the first time human beings felt shame. So they covered themselves. This, in the words of our theologians, is called the fall. 
It's called the broken image. The image we were made to bear, we still bear. We're still made in God's image, but now that image is warped. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. Now we're going to start weaving some of these threads together. Romans chapter 3. Second part of verse 22. There is no difference. Paul, missionary in the first century, is writing to a church made up of Jewish believers in Jesus and non-Jewish believers in Jesus. And he says, there's no difference between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And then he goes on to say, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, before we get on to that second part, I want to just spend some time on the first part. The first part is Paul's reflection on Genesis 3. The first part is simply saying this. No matter who you are, or what your background is, the image of God in us, though we still have it, is now bent. It's twisted. And instead of it being enough to simply be made in the image of God... Now we've got an insatiable hunger for meaning, for significance. Now we've got this drive, this emptiness that drives us to perform and to get validation and to be seen as beautiful or worthy or to find everything we were meant to find in the eyes of our Creator. Now we seek to find it in each other. And the problem is no one's big enough or beautiful enough or good enough to fill the hole. And so what happens is image bearers just keep consuming other image bearers. Looking for the validation that now sits at the center of who we are. Instead of a validation that comes from simply being human. See, we can't even picture what that is like. That's like speaking a foreign language to us. Now, all it means to be human is to be approved of or to reach a certain level of satisfaction or to have your urges fulfilled or to have a certain level of safety and comfort. Now what it means to be human is something other than being made in the image of a creator God. That's what it means to be bent and to be broken. And in such a world where image bearers are no longer satisfied with their image bearing, Hellenism can flourish. Because now, it's not enough just to be human. Now, you've got to be attractive, you've got to be smart, you've got to be athletic, you've got to have money, you've got to be skinny, you've got to be muscular, you've got to be adored. And all of our beautiful people, they tell us that even when you are adored, it's not enough. And so we look not only practically at a culture where 11-year-old girls go on the internet to ask if they're beautiful, we look theologically at a story where human beings find themselves with a broken image. Where instead of being satisfied, and, and this, I know this sounds so cliche, and I hate that I'm a pastor and that I'm supposed to say these things, but can you imagine a world where a mirror was simply an opportunity to praise God for what He's made. I mean, you can't even picture that. Can you imagine a world where getting old isn't a bad thing? 
Can you imagine a world where diversity of shapes and sizes is beautiful? See, that, in a small way, is what these redeemed people called the church are supposed to be about. They're supposed to reconstitute image bearers who honor each other because they love the Creator whose image they bear. So when the church, and I'm a huge fan, simply reinforces the cultural stereotypes of beauty for men and women, we just contribute to hell on earth, which is what this is. God. (laughs) You know, God created 5,000 species of frogs That clears it up. (laughs) How about 400,000 species of wildflowers? How about 12,000 species of ants? Evidently, the creator of the universe loves it when everything isn't the same. And any system of thought that says there is one ideal is straight from the pit of hell and is working against the purposes of the creator God of the universe. That's the point. But you say, well, how do I resist the 2,000 commercial images all with airbrushed ideals staring at me? I say it was the broken image of God in you that led you to determine to find your worth in what others think of you. And now, as part of the work of this Jesus, your image is being reconstituted so that you have meaning, value, and significance beyond whether or not you're pretty or ugly. God doesn't want to sit there and say, you know what? You are gorgeous. Absolutely. He's not giving you a self-esteem talk. He's not having you look in the mirror and tell yourself that you're gorgeous. That may be helpful, but he's doing something far more radical. He wants to take the ugly, pretty conversation and destroy what makes that a conversation to begin with. People who yearn for the validation that comes from the high opinions of others. He simply wants to say, if you could actually come to the place where you believe that you are loved, delighted in, and affirmed, in simply your image bearing, and for those in Christ a step further, being reconstituted in your image bearing, then, whether or not you're pretty or handsome becomes secondary in importance. There's this great picture of the end of the Bible where every tongue, every tribe, every nation sits gathered worshiping. Our God loves diversity. Now back to Song of Songs, and we'll end with this. So this young lady, verse uh, 6, chapter 1, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me. 
and made me take care of the family vineyards, but my own body, my own skin, my own vineyard, I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you will rest your sheep at midday. In other words, I'd like to know where you're going to be around noon. <laughs> there was a song about this or something. And then she says this, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? Now, some debate over what exactly this is a reference to. But if you had a large flock, you had many shepherds. And trailing behind the shepherds as they would graze their sheep were veiled women who would offer themselves in prostitution to the shepherds. So we have a woman who has declared that she's, she's got a man. His kisses are more intoxicating than wine. His lovemaking is fantastic. But he also has a name that is pleasing. And here we meet a woman who has a fundamental insecurity who simply says, why should I be like the prostitutes who walk behind the shepherds? In other words, I think what she's saying is even though I have this insecurity, I simply won't compromise. In fact, she says this beautiful thing. Oh my goodness, I love this. Young ladies, I want you to memorize this line right here. I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. Okay, that's the one you're gonna memorize. Guys, you can skip that memorizing that one. It'd be a little odd for you to use that in the first person. <laughs> but here's what she's saying. She says, verse 10 of chapter 8, I'm a wall, my breasts are like towers, thus I've become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He let out his vineyards to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. Here's the line, but my own vineyard is mine to give. And she's using vineyard in two ways, right? The literal vineyard that Solomon had, who rents out, he rents out to tenants. And then she says of her own sexuality, I don't rent this out. It's mine to give. In other words, ladies, it is absolutely possible to be insecure about the way that you look and utterly unwilling to compromise, even in the face of that insecurity. You are worth dying for. That's what it means to say the man is the head of the household. Until a man lays down his life, he hasn't fully emulated Jesus. So you're worth dying for is the implication. But you live in a world where when you go clothes shopping, there are only certain kinds of cuts and certain kinds of mannequins. You live in a world where you walk through the checkout line and you just are bombarded with all the beautiful people in their bikinis. 
and all the tips on losing weight. You live in a world where it is just accepted that men now consume skin. You live in a world where you have unbelievable pressure to dress in certain ways and to act in certain ways to seek the validation that your heart is yearning for and having others consume you. And against that demonic world, we say, you are made in the divine image. And in Christ, that image is actually being reconstituted so that at some point, a mirror isn't your enemy. At some point, you won't need the validation that comes from having a guy in your life. You may think, well, that's impossible. I can introduce you to some single friends of mine who would disagree with that. I would introduce you to some married friends of mine who still struggle. The answer isn't find a guy or find a girl and get married. The answer is to build something else than what our world says to build.